here, everybody. Welcome back to Ruby Redux here on Rooster Team Radio. Today we are going to be talking about Volume 7, Episode 8, Cordially Invited. And with me at this table, I have gathered you all here today because someone here is a murderer. Bum, bum, bum. I didn't think you were going to go that way. I th- like I was hoping for it, but then you did, and I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> And then I brought it back around by doing exactly what you expected me to do. <laughs> Therefore, surprising you, which is exactly what I intended. I mean, if we have to pick someone at this table who has probably straight up murdered a man directly or indirectly, I'm going to go with Jacques. That's not a bad guess. Gross. <laughs> oh. I'm going to go with the only actual villain at the table. Funny how that works. Well... Uh, listeners, your intrepid detective here is your host, Megan Salinas, and now let me introduce our suspects for the evening. With me in the room is suspect Katie Cullen. I am the one with the tragic, mysterious past, the knife hidden on my thigh, and an odd friendship with our narrator. Calling in from Los Angeles is the femme fatale, Stacy Shuttleworth. You can't prove anything. <laughs> And calling in from all the way across the country is the wonderful Mark B. Donica. I did it. Or did I? <laughs> Ooh, Wait, intriguing. <laughs> and now we have our full knives out scenario. Wait, no, Mark, you're supposed to go, I didn't do it. Or did I? You can't admit to it first. I'm the murderer. No. Oh, okay. Well, for those of our, our listeners that are also achievement hunter fans, I'm doing this the Alfredo strat of just admitting that I am, whether I am or not. <laughs> well, case closed. I guess those, take him away, boys. Those blame taking classes have gone really well. I did say, or am I? So I think my, I think I covered all of my bases. <laughs> for certain definitions of covered. Also, seriously, if y'all haven't seen Knives Out yet. Go do it. It's an amazing mystery movie. Yeah. Have we all seen Knives Out? Nope. Okay, oh! well, go see Knives Out. Okay, I bye. stand behind that. And let's talk about Ruby. <laughs> but I thought I was supposed to go see Knives Out right now. Wait. <laughs> I'm very confused. Nope. We're getting mixed okay. messages. Directions unclear. We're putting the recording on pause. We're going to go watch Knives Out, and then the rest of this is going to be a Knives Out podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the surprise twist. Ruby can wait another week. No, I have no problem with this. For real, though, uh, I, I think it's no secret uh, that uh, to everybody who's listening that I'm a big fan of murder mysteries. Um, and what we get here is a little bit of a detective narrative, just ever so slightly. Um, and we we let's let's go ahead and roll into it uh, because we have one character in particular who is looking to unravel this mystery, and we very much get that in the opening scene where Team Ruby is sort of looking at this invitation from Jacques and going, um, "What are we going to do about this?" And to make a long story short, Weiss is ultimately determined to be the one who has the easiest access to the mansion and is the one most likely in the group to not be noticed if she starts snooping around. So what we get is basically Detective Weiss is on the case, and I absolutely adore it. But, like, I don't know, like, feelings going into this episode, I was really dreading this whole affair, even though I love murder mysteries and even though I loved this setup. I was really anxious about how all this was going to play out. 
what were our thoughts kind of going into this episode? Let's go ahead and start with Stacy. I think it's nerve-wracking whenever, like, the characters that we identify, you know, our heroes, so Team Ruby in this case, goes into essentially the enemy's territory. So, yeah, we know a little bit about what's actually going on behind the scenes, but really, when they're in his space, anything could happen. And knowing what we knew about Jacques and about what he will do to win... There were definitely going to be some shenanigans. There were definitely going to be some uh, mysteries to solve. So we had a chance to snoop, yes, but also the ball was very much not in our court for going into this episode. Mark? I'm in a similar boat. You never know what your enemy knows. You know as much as the person telling the story tells you. And I thought we got a lot of like counterbalanced antics with this that I wasn't expecting. And I I would also say we got a bit of a redemption for a character that that I really enjoyed and I'll talk about that more in a little bit. Katie, I think I started this by making terrible jokes about how I'd really like to meet mom cuz we're finally going home and lo and behold I got what I wanted in the best and also worst possible way. Yeah, I was also really nervous about this because they make a big point of saying, like, yeah, it's going to be in Jacques' territory, and he says he's happy to moderate, but that just means he's going to be in control of the conversation. And we already know that Ironwood is not a very good soft skills person, and this is 100% soft skills. So... Yeah, little nerve-wracking, little nerve-wracking, completely prepared for things to go horrifyingly wrong because most of, our, most of our soft skills encounters have. It's, it was a lot. Like, as excited as I was for this murder mystery sort of setup or this detective setup, like, it's easy to forget while getting caught up in the larger meta-narrative of Salem and Watts and everything that's going on with this um, you know, political, like the the sabotage that they all did to, to rig the election. It's really easy to get lost in all of that narrative context. Why Saran away from home a couple volumes ago? She went to great lengths to escape this abusive situation. And now she's coming back. And even though she's coming back with Winter and with her found family of friends, like, ultimately, it's, okay, Weiss, you're going to be able to sneak around all by yourself. Have fun with that. So it's like, hey, you know this place you escaped? Have fun wandering it by yourself. And um, I think that really speaks a lot to the strength of her character in being willing to do that at the top of the episode. So I just, even though... I, I was really excited for this. Like, there's a lot of emotional stuff going into it. So, like, just as context for the episode, I really like that setup. I mean, case in point, Winter did the same thing. Just instead of directly running away from home, she joined the military to escape. This is two people who have escaped an abusive household having to go back in for the sake of duty and it affecting both of them in very similar ways. Like, I appreciated that we got that look as at Winter 
as well as Weiss because it's easy to forget that Winter also ran away from home because Dad is a horror show. And we get that brought up a little later with um, Willow talking to Weiss saying, hey, don't forget about your brother. Of course he doesn't like you. You left him alone with us. <clears throat> when there are others in in situations like this oftentimes it's one one child that is singled out to be the brunt of abuse but if that specific target leaves it, you switch targets and when there's only the one left it's jock taking everything out on whitley long story short jock you suck <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> He's terrible. He's so bad. Um, speaking of like, you know, when our when our crew pulls up to the Schnee Manor, uh, I also just kind of want to point out real, real quick that we've seen a real glow up in the Schnee Manor compared to the last time we saw it, which I believe was in volume four. You can tell just a, a quick nod to the to the direction of the art and like the the design team. Uh, the Schnee Manor looks incredible. And, like, the fact that it's filled to the brim with non-shadow people who are all in different outfits and, um, you know, it, all unique character designs. Like, this was, this was kind of, even though, like, again, there's a lot of emotion going into this scene as, as they walk into the manor. It was really cool to see how the design of the Schnee Manor has sort of changed in just literally two volumes. Uh, what were, did you, did you guys have any specific thoughts on the look of this cool party? Let's go ahead and start with Mark. Yeah, this felt more, not more, but I also feel that this was a creative decision because when Weiss was trapped in the house, it was depicted as this huge, cold, overbearing, just, archaic remnant for lack of a better word of a life that she outgrew and outpaced and when it comes to us seeing the mansion now it feels like to to take a tired expression it feels like lipstick on a pig it feels like Jacques knew that he would be it entirely it, it occurs to me that Jacques would be the type of a person who was like Yes, we'll have this evil thing where we confront James about his thing, but I have to make everybody think that I'm still as rich as I say I am. And he goes through and redoes his house. And as a result, we see this big ornate showpiece that's still vacant, still empty. Like that's why we had the same shot or not the same, but similar shots where you could see just the the terrible ideology of Jacques Schnee using his money to provide something that he doesn't have. And and that's that's what I think about the the revamp. Stacy. I mean I absolutely agree with Mark. I think yes, we kind of get this illusion of a place where people would gather, a very lavish party scenario. But that's mostly due to I think all of the people who are in that room. It's filled, sure, but as soon as we venture out of these main showpiece rooms and back into the actual proper mansion, we are back to that cold and vacant and absolutely just a facade of 
a family home of something real and we get we get that big disparity between no no this is where a big beautiful lavish welcoming party is happening but the Schnee Manor is still the Schnee Manor yeah it's an awfully empty place for a family to reside in Katie that's why I've never really understood McMansions what are you gonna do with that many rooms it's I honestly I agree with Mark in terms of you spruce up the front hall you spruce up where the party is going to be you work on the rooms where you actually live so we get to see his study more than once we get to see that dining hall which is austere let's just let's let's call it that it's a little bare for the dining hall um it's mostly just all in that front foyer where the party is. So, yeah, having all of those rooms is a status symbol, but that's all it is. There's nothing else going on there. There's nothing behind the facade. It's just empty and cold. And really, Jacques just made the mansion in the image of himself. Nothing behind the eyes. Oof. 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 <laughs> what a good way to put it. <laughs> just oof. Uh, There's no reason to be nice about him. Nope. <laughs> He's a jerk. Um, so, yeah, our, our boys and girls head on in uh, to the party. And before we go over to the dinner scene, I want to talk about a few little more lighthearted moments before we get to the the political intrigue of this episode and then the emotional devastation that we get. <laughs> um so I, I do want to talk about real quick the grown-ups and the kids part ways, but the Aesops make a point of saying, "Hey, don't break anything, don't cause any trouble, and of course, be vigilant uh, in case you know, be ready for anything in case Ironwood needs us." And the kids go, "That sounds cool. I have another idea. <laughs> How about the opposite? Don't even think about wandering off. Don't break anything. And yeah, and then Yang just going, what if we do think about wandering off, do break things, and all that other stuff? And I'm just like, you, there's a reason you've been pretty much my favorite from the beginning. Now, granted, the Aesops, on the other hand, aren't being much more adult about it. They're going to go eat them out of house and home. So. Yeah, they were like, we're off to go be role models and take every... I'm su- Honestly, I'm kind of surprised we didn't see one of them pulling out some Tupperware. Elm. It, it would be Elm. Fit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would not blame her. I am the person who went to a fancy party, wrapped up several small desserts in a napkin, and put them in my very small purse to bring home for the next day. I have no regrets. I respect that. I do too. My only wish was that it had been a bigger purse. <laughs> I once, literally, my freshman year of college, I once told my friend going to a party with free food. I literally told her be sh- because she was having a little, she was struggling a little bit. I, I literally told her, bring Tupperware in your purse. <laughs> and she said it was the most embarrassing thing she ever did, but she did it. <laughs> I just keep thinking of that bit in Agent Carter where they're all talking about like fitting food in their purse and like, oh, I have a custom bag that can fit half a chicken. Just like goals. It's a thing. Oh, no, I love it. It's a thing. Um, If we're going to talk about being role models, I wanted to touch on the reason half the adults started going outside and it's because of Crow. Uh, Yes, I want to talk about crow specifically in this moment 
uh, this was one of the more lighthearted stuff. Although, like, it had a it had a chance of being a dark moment, but Crow ultimately turns down a drink, and that is such a significant moment for his character. It's further confirmation that you know he has given up drinking for sure, but. I do want to just talk about really quick the angle of that particular shot. Cinematography means things. It's a way of conveying, um, you know, our, you know, television and film are visual mediums. And the way it's good to pay attention to the way a cinematographer likes to convey certain things. And the fact that it was a low angle shot with the wine glass in the foreground and crow in the background really does show how much of a struggle it was for him to say no in that moment before walking off. What did you guys think of this moment? And we'll go ahead and start with Katie since you brought it up. It's so well written. It's so well animated. Just the look on his face. You can see the conflict of old habits would be so easy and I'm not doing that anymore. And really well acted. Like we got this beautiful little microcosm of conflict and resolve and resolution all in a couple seconds maybe it was incredibly well put together it was a great character moment and then crow deciding all right i'm not getting a drink and i'm removing myself from the situation so i don't get tempted again like i know we make jokes about ah crow's the responsible adult but Holy shit, he actually is at this point, and it's so great to see. Stacy, This was a really visceral moment to me, and the way it was played out, it was, it was very masterfully done to the point where the first watch through, I found myself going, oh my god, could I blame him if he picked it up right now? And then that, like, immediate moment of pride at his resolve to walk away and to remove himself from the situation and to hold strong. So, very well done all around. Mark? I think it'll be interesting if, you were mentioning the cinematography, if it changes the more the temptation is around. If he gets used to it and sticks to his convictions and the uh, like it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So it's the visual representation of how difficult the decision or how less difficult the situation is getting. Um, I think this was a wonderful example of characters sticking to their convictions and improving the lives of those around them. As a result, it's one of my, one of the things that makes me love Superman as a character. One of the things that, that made me like the Lone Ranger movie uh and this will come back around when we talk about another scene but it's somebody sticking to their convictions and having an an effect on those around them and good good on crow i wholeheartedly agree and i like this being in here not just as a a great character moment for him but i love me some narrative parallels and some narrative inversions and it presents an interesting inversion when we see or an interesting contrast when we see mama schnee later in the episode but uh, I don't really want to drill down on that right now. We can get to that when we get to that. What I want to drill down on now, since we're all talking about Crow, don't, is don't, just don't you do us it. ever so slightly into the shipping shelf, which has been revamped to the Love Loft. I've already made the drinks. I was going to make a crack about, yeah, he has to behave. He just finished flirting with his boyfriend. He 
did. He which did. Now we're in the love loft, guys. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. Cozy up here. How did I get you? You started the show here, and I had no idea. <laughs> Surprise! Actually, we live here now. We have a moving escalator instead of stairs. And while you were talking about cinematography, I had distracted you, and I hit the on switch. Wait a minute! And now we're up here. Am I wearing <laughs> heelys? How did you put heelys on my on my feet? That's ridiculous. You thought this was a murder mystery in Son the dining room? Nope. <laughs> that, that was the real the real crime. <laughs> We've been in the love loft all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm telling you guys this podcast is going to end with mark kaiser sozang us and it turns out he's going to be the mastermind shipper behind all of this surprise i was a i was associative writer on this season and planted this romance in here <laughs> i think that would be the ultimate kaiser soze moment for sure is mark eddie Rivas? <laughs> shut up what? <laughs> you know, we have never seen them in the same room together. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's that's entirely untrue. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> I meant on camera. I yeah, on, ca on yes, camera. on camera. I interviewed him at the last RTX we went to. <laughs> A likely story. You? Oh, Jesus. That was a feat of brilliance. <laughs> I love green screens. Anyway. Anyway. So we're up here in the love loft and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, we had this moment between, you know, before the team splits up. And actually, I do think it has narrative significance that it is right before this moment where Crow refuses the drink. But as they're parting ways... Uh, Clover says something along the lines of, like, wish us luck. Um, and Crow says, you know, hey, they invited you, didn't they? And yeah, it was a... I, I was hoping Clover would wink at him. He didn't. But, like, there's clearly some flirting going on right here. And I think whether you want to take that in a romantic direction or not, I do, because here we are. Um, <laughs> I think... That no matter what, this positive relationship with Clover is something that he's drawing strength from and something that makes it easier to turn down alcohol. Um, and I very much, uh, much like I want them to make Bumblebee officially canon by the time this season is done, I would like them to do the same with Clover and Crow. But I don't know. Did did you guys have any other thoughts on this? And I'm going to go ahead and start with Stacy. <laughs> I know that out of all of us, she and I are the most eager to be up here. Uh, hello. <laughs> Excuse. <laughs> you just bravely insulted Katie. Look, we can all wow. love the Clover and Crow. Wow. <laughs> I just I assumed... didn't fucking name the love loft or anything. <laughs> I just wow. assumed that out of the two of us, Stacy and I are the biggest shippers. Wow. Do you know me? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Stacy. I, you know, I did not expect to like be so fully on board the Clover and Crow thing. It was like, oh, that's cute at first, but man, they just keep giving us everything. <laughs> and yes, to like to your point about how this positive relationship is giving Crow strength. I think it also gives him confidence and like this 
confidence that you need to turn down something that tempts you so something that used to be your confidence so you know having clover step in and having his ability to interact so openly and not just with the people he's related with you know with his nieces makes a big difference and is helping him move forward and stay strong so Yes. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't need that source of liquid courage anymore. I like that. Okay, Katie, I'm sorry. I didn't look, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. I acknowledge your feelings and I apologize. Look, now you're going to have to listen to Katie's Clover and Crow fan fiction right here and now to make up for. I'm putting a new chair in the love loft and it's just for me. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did want to. Because we're here and because it needs to be said, I will be okay if Rooster Teeth just goes, no, this is a friendship we weren't, we don't intend to take it romantically. Like, I'm okay with that. Um, I do think that sometimes as a whole fandom has an issue with, oh, they can't just be friends. They have to be something more like we always have to ship it. And I... I want to take a step back and say, like, yeah, it's okay if you ship it, but it's also okay if you just think they're friends. There's no right answer at the moment. Shipping it doesn't mean you think they're incapable of being friends, and thinking that they're friends doesn't mean that they should never have a romantic relationship. Like, there's give and take, there's shades of gray, and regardless of which one you prefer... Both interpretations are valid and you should be able to respect people who have an interpretation that differs from yours. I've, I've seen enough of fandom to feel like I do need to lay that out so that people don't take this podcast and go, well, obviously it's this. It's like, guys, this is, this is our interpretation. This is what we're saying. That doesn't necessarily mean it's canon, and that does not mean we think that other interpretations are invalid. Otherwise, we wouldn't be torturing Mark by bringing him up here week <laughs> after week. Yo, I'm cool. Okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> that said... God, yes, I absolutely ship it. And um, Crow is going to be real sad when Clover inevitably dies. And it'll you be interesting sh- to stop. see how he deals with that. You stop with that. Oh, honey, I am that kind of shipper. I'm a red versus blue fan. You kind of have to be a doomed shipper once you go into freelancer territory. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not discounting that as a potential story beat because this show is not afraid to be like, oh, would you like some tragedy with your show? Here, have a lot of it. They don't ask. So. They just do it. <laughs> this is we true. Have no choice. This is true. Yeah. So, again, I, I would not be surprised if this wound up as a tragic ship. I would be pleasantly surprised if it did not, to be completely honest. That would be be a real nice turnaround that said yes i ship it yes i can appreciate crow drawing strength from something that isn't a bottle and i think the reality check from his nieces was the start and then this friendship with clover is helping it's he's learning how to be a functional human being without that crutch of always needing liquor and i can really appreciate that so Yes, I love it. I ship it. I would not be surprised if it ends horribly. There will be no talk. <laughs> there will be no talk of killing Clover or Crow while we are in the, in the lover's lot. I refuse. 
<laughs> you realize the love loft has at least one sad seat because tragic shipping is a thing. Uh, get out. <laughs> no, this is my chair. Just for We're me. We're going to push it into a little alcove and we'll cover it with a little curtain so we don't have to look You're at gonna it. You're going to go into the no, no, no nook and think about what you've done. <laughs> Never. Um, well, again, do you know me? <laughs> On that note, Mark, Hi. thoughts? Well, first of all, I I think you probably should have rethought having the uh what 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 the hell is this called the 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 love loft the what love is loft it? the love loft sorry um I blanked for a second because I was trying to make this dumb joke that it shares a wall with the satic and I think <laughs> Katie like sitting against there with her chair is probably a bad idea but with the sad seat with the sad seat um so you know there there are a couple of words that end with ship. One of them being relation, and the other one being friend. I appreciate, Katie, you clearing that up even as, like, a big shipper. And and it's one of those things where right now Crow is I, – I said a little while ago about somebody just being a positive influence and affecting those around him. And Clover is definitely that one for Crow. And we've seen within the last couple of seasons that Crow just doesn't like getting close to people – unless he has to due to familial obligation or whatever. Like, he he wants to. He very much wants to. And it seems like with Yang and Ruby, there hasn't been too much of a semblance affection. You know what I mean? Like, the, the semblance effect for, for them on him hasn't really been pushed into the limelight until more recent seasons. But it this is the first time when he's he's reached the lowest low, He's opening himself up to change and it's going well and he's writing it out. And whether that ends in a relationship or ends in a friendship, I think everybody should just be happy that Crow is happy for the time being, especially like I I don't I hope that nobody dies from this. But but it's entirely possible. We've almost doubled the main cast this season and to think that there are no stakes and to think that they wouldn't present some sort of a lasting effect on some of our characters for whatever reason and however that is. And I'm not saying specifically who would be the result of that, but it feels like they're setting us up for a sacrifice, whether that's these two or other characters this is ju- people just don't trust when good things happen, but we should enjoy it while it happens. So you're not saying that Clover's going to die. You're saying all of the Aesops are going to die. <laughs> I'm saying this. Apo- like, That's interesting. Dude, I, I suggested that uh, Meryl was going to get shot by James. I think if there's anybody that could talk about something like that, it's my dumbass. So, yeah, I, I, I think that they're, they're setting something is being set up. In the background right now, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of like uh, uh, like when David Co- David Copperfield does an illusion and there's all of the people wearing like all black that are moving him around against like a like oh he's flying but we just don't see the people and we don't see the moves it's it's a, a, a what is it like a street card game where we're we're just seeing the cards move but we don't know all of the sleight of hand that's going on behind the scenes. Well, Rooster Teeth has been just in general, really good at actually showing us all of the pieces, but not actually making us realize that that's what we were looking at until after the season is over or seasons later. 
Mm -hmm. So I think we do have a good number of the pieces right now, but I don't think that we've recognized them as such. Yeah, I can see that. I'm sure we're we're getting ready for another devastating blow because we've been rather successful in the in the wake of volume 3. <laughs> Things have gone relatively well. So I'm sure we're gearing up for some more character death at some point soon. That being said, I don't I honestly don't think either Crow or Clover is on the chopping block or the proverbial chopping block because I don't know. For me, my interpretation of it is that they are setting this up to be a romantic relationship. I completely understand the interpretation of it just being a friendship. So, like, it's just my interpretation that that this is blossoming into a relation into a, a romantic relationship. And given that context, I think Rooster Teeth is aware enough of problematic tropes that they wouldn't go down that route specifically of the kill your or bury your gaze um trope i don't think that's where we're heading and i think if they did go down that route i think it would be problematic like we had a a good we had a long discussion when elia was introduced and when her feelings uh, towards Blake were made clear. We had a long discussion about whether or not that was potentially problematic. And ultimately, you know, the character had a redemption arc. And so in, I think it was our interpretation at the time was like, no, but it could be depending on how they, depending on where they go with this. Um, and ultimately it ended up not being. And so I, I do feel the same way here where it's like, if they go down that route, I think that's problematic and I think they're aware enough as storytellers to not do that. That's just me, though. Uh, but anyway. Uh, oh, go ahead. Just in terms of barrier gaze and looking at that, it's... I don't know if there's a really good way to phrase this, but if it's your only gay relationship in the show and it ends in tragedy, yeah, that... Mm. But if you have a number of them, if that's not your only gay characters or your only characters on the LGBTQ spectrum, you can't make a character functionally immortal because of their sexuality in an attempt to avoid a trope, because then that skews your storytelling. But at this point, we have at least one character that we know is gay. We have bumblebee which just make it canon already you guys come on we're here we're doing this just let's go and then there's the potential with crow and clover so we're not sitting here looking at yes there is only one gay character and we're going to kill her and it's a tragedy it's we have multiple people so even if they wind up enacting that trope on someone i would argue that it's not as bad because it wouldn't be they're gay, so it has to end in tragedy. And it wouldn't be the only gay relationship on the show. Like, we might be borrowing trouble here, but I really do think that you can't make your characters immortal because of who they are. You can't give them plot armor just for representation's sake. I think that skews your story. But I also think that that trope isn't as bad as long as you don't have just one be-all-and-end-all gay person or one be-all-and-end-all gay relationship. 
Like, it's the same idea as you have one female character and therefore she has to be everything. No, when you have a cast full of women, you can do whatever you want and it's not anti-feminist because they're people. They're not just the one woman that is the pinnacle of womanhood. So, I don't know. I might have just taken myself up a tree there, but I hope you can all kind of get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think we understand. Uh, anyway... Do we have any final thoughts on uh, this, uh, any any shipping related moments uh, before we move back on to there is one other lighthearted scene I, I want to talk about before we steer into uh, dark, dark and gloomy territory. Just kiss already. If I know the, the, the scene you're talking about, may I offer a bit of a transition? Um, I yes. find it interesting that we still haven't had another real conversation between Ren and Nora but they are professional enough to not it affect the team which, which I think is a weird way to put it like we we oh, haven't we haven't had a follow-up to their blow up and subsequent kiss and all of that from a few nights ago which is one of the things that we thought was going to happen immediately after and we still like their relationship is as such to where it it feels like this may have been the biggest moment in their combined relationship in, in sort of teasing that romantic side. And yet we still haven't had the blow off of that. And I, and I hope that it happens soon. Yeah. Kind of to, to go off of what Mark says, like they, one would expect that they, we would have seen an immediate emotional fallout and at this party, they are functioning as friends and teammates as though nothing happened. And I don't think that's necessarily them avoiding the issue in a weird way. I kind of think that's just kind of like the narrative saying we're OK. Like, I'm sure that there's going to be some additional emotional context. But given how seamlessly they're still working together, um, yeah, I kind of think that it's not going to have as dire consequences as we initially speculated. Uh, Stacy, Yeah, I think we see that even though they have this disagreement and they have this whole situation and there's a lot going on, they are still very much a cohesive unit. And cohesive to the point where all of that went down, they carried out that entire multi-step plan without actually having a verbal conversation about it. So they are still very much on the same page, in the same mindset, uh, even if their personal romantic life might be kind of a mess. It's okay, they'll get it figured out and everyone will be happy. Right? <laughs> Katie? I get the feeling that we're not going to get that conversation until... I would say probably later in the season. That might be a thing that happens either at the worst possible moment when things are ramping up and going crazy or after we've gone over the larger hurdles and things are starting to calm down a little bit. I have no idea where we're going this season, so I can't say for sure one way or another. But I think that's one of those conversations that will happen on screen for purposes of dramatic timing. That said, that change in their relationship, for good or for ill, is not enough to upset years, probably over a decade at this point, 
of the two of them working together and being a team. It's one of those things that you can just fall into very easily, and they've had a lot of practice doing this. And I mean, we see Jean as part of this as well and looking at Team Juniper and going, yeah, yeah, they work really, really well as a unit. And and actually, now that you bring that up, I think this could be a point of contention for both of them where Ren can say, oh, see how much better we work where we're just looking at the mission, sort of like how the Aesops are. Whereas Nora's like, you went just back to normal as if nothing changed, but everything changed. And I think this this specific moment could be a point of contention in the future. Get out of the sad seat. That's where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I help where I can. (laughs) It's going to be the sad sofa at this point. Eh, It's the sad sofa now. There you go. Uh, I I like that. I, I like both interpretations of like this is just them settling back into the groove and I also like the idea of like why can't we just keep things the way they are change is scary even though change is inevitable as the show uh has has kind of reiterated time and time again um so I I like the idea of that being a focal point of some sort of conversation in the future but man Okay, we're we're gonna sl- go ahead and and I'm gonna flip the switch on the stairs and we're gonna go back down to the ground floor because I want to tr- uh, shift gears a little bit from talking about relationships to talking about the style of this elaborate <laughs> sort of power play that the kids are making because Whitley is trying to prevent Weiss from sneaking off during the party and as he's talking about whatever it is that obnoxious little brothers talk about. I don't know. As an older sister, I tend to tune it out. Um, <laughs> but no offense to my little brother, who I love very much. He's great. Um, well, he here's... is not a Whitley. But as as this, this is going on, Team Juniper decides to make a distraction. And stylistically, this is unlike anything we've ever seen in Ruby before. And it's kind of amazing. So what did you guys think of this stylistic change? Let's go ahead and start with Stacy. I liked, it was kind of like a combination of slapstick comedy with very, like, sophisticated kind of uh, screen, like, the way we were being shown it. Uh, And so watching it kind of build, it was very creatively put together, and it it almost ramped up the silliness of what was happening um, and made it seem way more dramatic than it actually was. Like, they were carrying out some huge plot... Where really they were just trying to dump a glass of wine on Willie's head. Yeah, they kind of wanted to goof at his expense. <laughs> right. Mark? This reminded me of a very Ocean's Eleven y type of just wild, heisty sort of a thing. More specific. That's exactly what I was thinking. More recently, it reminded me of the Into the Spider Verse when they're going, it can't be that easy, directly into <laughs> like. A comedic break-in heisty thing. So, yeah, I th- I thought it was fun, but I, I ultimately, compared to the rest of the episode and the stuff that we got, I forgot about the scene until it started. Like, when I rewatched the episode, I was like, oh, yeah, this thing happened. But because the lasting impression of this episode is everything that happened after. And it's not necessarily 
that I'm not trying to like insult it or, or whatever. It's just the, the nature of the rest of the episode was so strong and to have this also be strong and then continue to be strong. This is, this is a, a good scene in a film to break up the tension where we go from this deep conversation with James and Oscar to ah comedy, 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 comedy to all right. There's been a murder. So (laughs) ultimately awesome, awesome scene, but it happens in between two really big moments. Excuse me. Uh, Yeah. I thought narratively speaking, pacing wise, it, it was really good for breaking up the tension, but then the tension, like we get this scene to relieve the tension that's already built up. And then the following scene like revs up the tension, like, like way like tenfold so i was wondering like maybe it would have been better if they placed this a little later in the episode but ultimately i really enjoyed it katie and that's looking at it as a singular episode with the understanding that later on ruby gets stitched together so that each volume becomes a movie in and of itself so occasionally something that might seem a little out of place in the episode works perfectly for the pacing of the overall season and the large movie that it becomes So I think that this scene at this point probably works better from a big picture perspective than an episode specific perspective. That said, yeah, I 100% thought of Ocean's Eleven for this. And I appreciate that this whole big convoluted plan that they had goes to naught when one woman decides to leave a conversation and then it works anyway because she picked up that glass of wine and wound up dumping it all over Whitley. And let me tell you how hard it is to get red wine out of a white anything. Anything. Dude probably had to go up and oxyclean his hair. What a wonderful bait and switch that was, too. Like, ah, oh, it oh, didn't. Ah, oh. like, it was so quick <laughs> that it wasn't like a cop out. It was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just the yes, and then the no, and then the. Well, you know what? That worked, and it's perfect. I have to wonder if Whitley cutting Weiss off from the stairs was just kind of him being a shitbird, or if it was um, Jacques having told him, don't let anyone go upstairs. That It could go either way. It could be uh, a little brother just needling his older sister, or it could be that he's acting um, under orders from dad. Uh, that... <laughs> I mean, kind of a bummer we get at the top of the episode is when he answers the door and Klein's not there and Weiss has to ask what happened to Klein. And it's like, well, he's been let go. And guess what? You know, I'm implying that it's your fault. Um, so, yeah, I it could go either way. But I feel like if Jacques was really intent on people not wandering around, he would have placed a servant there instead of. I don't know. Maybe he told Whitley to keep an eye on his sister or something. But, like, I'd I'd buy that more than no one is allowed to go into this hallway. I mean, a servant isn't going to be... You would put, like, a bodyguard or something there if you really wanted to turn people away because rich people tend to run roughshods over servants a lot because that's kind of what rich people do sometimes. It's just, oh, you're just the help or whatever. Like, there's this attitude that I would not be surprised to find prevalent in a party like this in this guy's home. But if you put the heir there, if you put, yeah, no, he's an actual member of the family there, 
Anyone who tries to run over him is pretty much gonna get reported straight to Jacques, and there goes your social standing and any standing you might have had with this company. So if you need someone to relatively politely tell people to buzz off and maybe not go places they're not supposed to go in this very large mansion, you put someone there with some social clout. I would agree with you, but then he immediately leaves. (laughs) (laughs) He is a kid who just got a glass of wine dumped on him. Like I said, I would agree with you, but he immediately leaves. So I don't necessarily think that's the case. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, But uh, do we have any final thoughts on this fun slapsticky scene before we move on into uh, some less fun stuff? I appreciate that we have NPCs of all different skin tones and body types. Yeah. 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 It's really great. All right, let's go ahead. Uh, Before we move into our next topic, I want to take a quick moment to just say thank you to everybody who's gone to iTunes to rate, subscribe, and leave a comment. We love hearing from you. It it makes us more searchable on the web as people look for um, Rooster Teeth-related content. And also, it means a lot to us. Uh, We love giving shout-outs to people who interact with us via those comments. And even though we can't see them, um, if like there's an if there's an international iTunes situation, it still helps. So we really appreciate when people take the time to go and do that. We don't have any new ones this week, but um, again, we just want to say thank you to everybody who participates and everybody who interacts with us on any given level. Um, whether that's via Twitter or if you join our Discord. We have so many fun people in our Discord, and there are lots of ways to support us. You can support us on Anchor uh, via a monthly subscription. You can also purchase stuff from our Tee Public. But as we've said before, no matter what your level of commitment in our community, it means the world to us. So just thank you guys so, so much for everything you do. All right, let's get back to it. Uh, We have... Okay, so yeah, I made a bit about it at the very beginning of the episode in terms of I've gathered you all here tonight, and that's kind of what the room that the dinner is taking place in is exactly the sort of room that that moment in a murder mystery or an Agatha Christie mystery would take place in. It's this lavishly long table with Jacques and the other council members at one end and James, Winter, Penny, and Clover at the other end. And surprisingly, Robin right there in the middle. And I'm going to be honest, I was not expecting her to be there. So Jacques ended up surprising me a little bit by inviting her. But ultimately, we know that this whole operation is basically just to discredit Ironwood and to get the rest of the council to basically convince them to oust him. Uh, What did we think of this whole dinner scene and how uncomfortable it was? Let's go ahead and start with Mark. I, I was a big fan. I was very, but I was also very surprised that we, there are only two other council seats. <laughs> like that, that leaves a total yeah. of council votes to five, which is a good number. You can get a, a decisive whatever, even though James has two. But the fact that there's a total of five votes means that there's a total of five technical council members, and that's not great. But I think that's part of the reason why Jacques had. 
a Robin there, though Robin being there could also be a, hey, Robin, I want to show you that I'm the nice guy. You're the jerk. And this guy's the real <laughs> jerk. Let's unite Mantle against James. And he, he was just it was just a way to try to get more people on his side. And man, um, ugh, I had his name and it totally it, it totally escapes me right now. But whoever whoever voices Jacques, holy cow, just what he just dripping with the most disgusting like how it, it's one of those things where he plays it so well that you're looking at the rest of the people in the scene and like how can you not tell that this guy is just oozing with bs the entire time just what a jerk and and what a performance but it i i absolutely uh adored it and i like the symbolism of having Nicholas Schnee overlooking the whole thing from the back and seeing Santa in that big suit of armor, totally <laughs> flipping ruled. I love that canonically her grandpa is Santa. It's <laughs> so, so cool. And since you brought it up, Mark, I do want to take a quick sidebar um, before we move on with the rest of the discussion. Uh, I do, just as a quick sidebar, since you mentioned the suit of armor, uh, anybody who, you know, watched the initial white trailer will recognize that suit of armor and the, as well as like the fact that it's the same suit of armor that is decorated all around the mansion. The fact that we know now that that's Nicholas's suit of armor is a pretty interesting additional context. At, at least that's making the assumption that that is Nicholas in the portrait back there, which since he's the only member, only other member of the Schnee family that we've been made aware of via the world of Remnant, I think that's a safe bet. But we were talking a lot last episode about that suit of armor and how we still don't necessarily have a canonical explanation for what it was or what it meant and in, in the context of the trailer. And my wonderful brothers, as, as I mentioned, I have two great brothers who got me a wonderful Christmas present in the form of the Ruby Compendium. Um, and the Ruby Compendium actually gives a quick explanation for what that creature in the white trailer was. And guess what, guys? It's a geist. Specifically, there, there are a couple different type of geist. There's the regular geist where it's just in its ghost form. There's the Petra Gigas, which is it when it's in its golem-esque form and the one in the white trailer is the armagigas which the book describes as with a name incorporating latin roots of weapon and giant the armagigas is a geist inhabiting a suit of armor in the white trailer weishni faced an armagigas and later drew upon her memories of the encounter as a selected manifestation of her summoning ability so yeah a geist inhabited her grandfather's suit of armor essentially and not necessarily his armor given how big it was but like it took on the armor of the schnee family like that's kind of awesome that's pretty amazing nicholas continued to um inspire atlas in its future he was the original atlesian knight and now we have the the robo soldiers that are also called the Atlesian Knights. And I I think that's cool. Yeah. 
That is pretty cool. And um, to, to touch on what you were saying, Mark, the voice actor for Jacques is an actor by the name of Jason Douglas. Yes, I, I, was, I was looking it up and I was going to find a way to pop it back in. But thank you. You are welcome. Um, so, yeah, uh, sorry to take that quick little sidebar, but like that was just something when when I found it in the compendium, I was really excited about. Um, anyway, so, yeah, back to the dinner. Stacy, thoughts? So uncomfortable. <laughs> I just everything about it was cold and like lifeless and yeah there were a lot less council seats than I had expected also I was slightly surprised um Robin's appearance was slightly surprising at first too but thinking about Jacques and what we know about him uh yeah she was she was on his bad side for as long as they were running against each other. But as soon as his victory is assured, can he use her in a different way? He can use her against Ironwood, and he absolutely is the kind of person who would immediately about face and make nice under the guise of, oh, see, I'm so nice. I'm so kind. I want you to be included. It was nothing personal beating you in this race. We all want what's best for Atlas, right? And just disgusting. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Katie? I think Robin would have been able to see through him, but I also think that there's no way she would pass up the opportunity to be in the room where it happens, as it were. What I really appreciate is, you know, the really long dinner table is kind of stereotypical of the whole rich people, royalty, etc. thing. What I love is that it's used here as oppressive architecture. It's kind of a philosophy of, yes, this thing is here, but the way that we have built things influences human behavior. It's the idea of we have all of these beautiful places, but all the nooks and crannies have spikes in them so that homeless people can't sleep there. It's the we have a beautiful place, but there's literally nowhere to sit or hang out, which encourages people to just pass through and leave more quickly. Uh, which is why Galaxy's Edge is having so much trouble at Disneyland right now, because that's how it's built. But here we have oppressive architecture in that this table has very much become an us versus them uh, set up with the rest of the council and Jacques at one end and Ironwood and his cadre at the other. So again, Robin choosing to sit smack in the middle, one is probably not what Jacques had planned. He probably wanted her sitting up there with them. And two, an interesting way to seat things where it visually puts her in the middle of this conversation as opposed to on one side or the other. It's, it's a great little bit of visual storytelling that I really appreciate. And the dining room is so bare. There's curtains. There's that portrait. There's probably a chandelier or something in there just in terms of lighting fixtures. And that's it. You'd think a place where you'd take your meals would have a little more something going on, but this is a whole lot of nothing, and it makes it feel that much more oppressive. Like, I can really appreciate the design for this. And also, I would like to throw Jacques out a window, because he's terrible, and I can't stand him, and I can't blame Winter for blowing up, because... This is the same bullshit manipulation and gaslighting that she's dealt with all her life. And here she is, back in the thick of it, a military, not quite commander, but essentially second in command, in line to become the Winter Maiden, 
and still powerless. Or at least made to feel powerless in this moment. I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other in this particular situation. We're, we're back to its soft skills. And a lot of people here have trouble with soft skills. And, oh man, can we also t- talk about how much of an awful garbage person Jacques is for singling out Penny? And being like, oh, are we even, like, safe with her here? Even though he knows that the footage was doctored? Ugh, this fucking guy. Um, but yeah, he's awful. I do I do like that beat, um, and poor Penny during this whole time. I do like that beat um, to, to single out Penny and then, you know, Winter eventually losing her cool and leaving the room. Because it leads to a very interesting moment between the two of them. And even though that we know that they've been both working with Ironwood for some time, we really haven't seen a whole lot of in- of the two of them interacting together, even though they are trusted members of Ironwood's inner circle and presumably have been working together for a long time. Uh, what did you guys think of this moment between Penny and and winter let's go ahead and start with mark i loved it i mean it was it's a little bit uh, i mean this in a nice way it's a bit of a cliche to have the human tell the robot about feelings but the robot understands it a little bit more but ultimately it served its purpose and and i liked it stacy yeah i think that the kind of change up with this interaction to where penny didn't understand when Winter expressed how she, well, couldn't express her feelings. Her her blow up in the dining room basically went against not only everything she would have learned in the military, but everything she would have had to learn growing up in that house. And so when she finally let loose with her actual emotions, uh, it was interesting to see her have trouble dealing with that and not understanding that it was okay, thinking that she lost it, that was unacceptable, and having Penny be kind of her voice of reason in this or saying, you know, no, you're allowed to do that. And if you maintain, you know, if you keep thinking that you cannot feel that way, then we are not on the same page. I do appreciate the subversion of, oh, it's not, the robot doesn't understand emotions. It's that Penny approaches all of these situations from a very, very different mindset than Winter does. And hers is, yeah, no, emotions are fine. It's okay to express them. It's part of who you are. Whereas you make a very good point that it goes against Winter's military training and what she had to do to survive in that house. Like that's, yes, thank you for bringing that up. So it's a subversion of, oh, the robot doesn't understand emotions and more, no, these are two people who have two very different viewpoints. Like, I appreciate that we had that subversion and that the scene made it very clear that it wasn't a feelings do not compute thing. Yeah, um, I really liked Penny going, you know, just, you know, you speaking from the heart isn't a weakness and I don't understand why that's necessarily viewed as such. Um, I really like this moment, too, because there's a lot of just emphasis in general in the real world for that, like, seeks to invalidate the way people feel Um, when, you know, a lot of times men are encouraged 
that or are discouraged from showing their emotions because like, oh, it makes you a sissy if you show emotions about anything. And women, when they show emotions, it's like, oh, you're you're just being hysterical or you're overreacting or you're crazy. So like having like looking at that through a very real world lens, winter going, I shouldn't have let my emotions get the better of me. And, you know, also seeing James struggling with his emotions, too, and struggling to keep things bottled up inside. It's not healthy to never be able to express the way you feel. And even though sometimes feel like relying too much on feelings, um, you know, over over facts, da, 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 like there can be some danger in relying on your feelings too much or only relying on your feelings versus when there's facts involved. But like, it's also not healthy to not express yourself at all. And I think this season is a, is a little bit of an exploration of that because there is so much emphasis on bottling up your feelings and bottle, keeping secrets inside and everything like that. And so I think this one moment of winter sort of, um, being frustrated with herself for letting her emotions slip and having Penny go, no, it's okay to feel those feelings. And in the last episode, having Oscar kind of say the same thing. Um, I think it's really cool, especially given that, you know, Ironwood as a character is, you know, he's the one quote unquote without a heart, even though we know in fact he has one. And so I just, I kind of really liked that that this conversation about emotions and the kind of subtext here where it's okay to feel your feelings is coming from Penny, who is, you know, obviously she's very pure and very childlike, but it's in the same way that Ruby is, she's also being very honest in that moment. I, I don't know. I just, I thought it worked really well and I think it tied in really well to the messages that this season is kind of exploring. I do want to point out, and I, um, I'm sorry, my brain just stopped. Wow. I appreciate that this conversation is happening on the heels of a very oppressive conversation with Jacques, who is the kind of person who will see your emotions, find the opening in there, and then stab you in it. So, as much as emotional vulnerability is important this season, it's interesting to see that reflected through the mirror of, yes, but maybe not in front of the guy who will straight up use them to manipulate you for his means. Like, it's, it adds a little more nuance to that conversation, a little more danger. Yeah, especially given that, you know, all of Watts's machinations are all about manipulating people. And I mean, again, not to not to hammer the point home, but the bad guys in this series, the Grimm, are all about being drawn to and feeding on negative emotions. So it's it's interesting that we have a villain who you know, an army of villains who do that. And that is a, an important function of the world that we're in. And then, like, to contrast that, we have characters 
who are bottling up their feelings inside. I don't know. I think it I think it makes her a very interesting contrast and to show that bottling up your emotions isn't necessarily the answer, but also to be aware of people who will take advantage of your emotions. I don't know. There's a lot in here. There's a lot of nuance and there's a lot to unpack. Um, there's many an academic paper to be written on this. For sure. Um, do we have any other thoughts on that? Because like um, the the only other thing I feel like is really important to point out is um, that, yeah, the fact that Robin being here also notes to herself that the other council members have no clue what Ironwood has in store for uh, Amity Tower. So just like they're just as much in the dark as she is. And I don't think that's a piece of the puzzle that she had been made aware of prior to this meeting. Let's go ahead and move on to Detective Weiss's investigation. Um, so she's going through the house. And I think a lot of what you were saying, Mark, uh, and, and Stacy about like the, the way that this mansion feels empty and that it's, it's not, even though it has the trappings of like, this is a home for a family. It's, it's ultimately empty and dark and yeah. It's kind of sad. But as she's going through, she ends up making it to her father's office where, surprise, we meet Mama Schnee for the first time. And I'm going to be honest, this is not at all what I was expecting her to be. I was expecting her to have her drink in her hand, but I wasn't expecting the character to be quite like this. What did you guys think of our introduction to Willow Schnee. Let's go ahead and start with Katie. <clears throat> I honestly expected her, I expected like a ball gown or something. I was not expecting the waistcoat and pencil skirt. And so that threw me, but I think in a good way, because all we knew about her was that she married Jock and developed alcoholism as a method of coping with Jock. <laughs> Just all of this, this horrifying situation. So I wasn't expecting the measure of competence that she had, to be completely honest. And it threw me, but in a good way. I like what we got from her. And I like the nuance that we got. Like, yeah, she had her drink in hand. She had her bottle in hand. We were expecting that. But the conversation about don't blame your brother, don't forget your brother. Well, of course he hates you. You left him alone with us with that understanding that, yeah, my husband's kind of a monster and I haven't exactly been able to mitigate that seemingly ever. And I don't think it was for lack of trying. Um, but also the agency that she showed in setting up security cameras everywhere and the I put them in in case I ever have to and then leaving that like in case you have to what have to leave have to make a legal case have to like in case you have to what and there's so much stuff there. But the fact that she was driven to putting cameras in her home unbeknownst to her husband which makes me think that he's a goddamn idiot if he didn't notice the installation of security cameras in his house. And I just, oh, it's such a rough situation, but I appreciate that we got a much more complex character than we initially thought we'd get. Like, I appreciate the hell out of Willow Schnee. Life sucks for her. Stacy. 
Yeah, this was a very surprising introduction, I think. Um, Katie mentioned how she thought she would be, you know, just dressed in a ball gown, something. We always got the impression, not that we got very much information about her, but, you know, our first kind of mention, she's drinking in the gardens. I, I don't know why, but that struck me as a very like, oh, she's like a debutante who just lounges around in fancy dresses and is completely detached from this reality. And so having that turn and no, actually, she's kind of this sleeper agent who has been stuck in this horrible situation and has succumbed to alcoholism as a way of coping, but is also low-key preparing to fight back or taking the necessary measures to be ready to fight back or at least have some dirt on Jacques' knee. That was a surprising twist. So this was an unexpected introduction to Mama Schnee and not exactly what I expected. Mark? When a character introduction can completely recontextualize the world that you've been living in for the past, for at this point, seven seasons, and not just the world, but characters and, and situations and, and things like that, I, I think, not to say that she wasn't going to be a valuable asset in the story but the fact that it took one line of dialogue to completely recontextualize Whitley as a character that the four of us have openly for lack of a better term shit upon we named him shitley uh when when he was first introduced you know we we fell into the same place that Weiss was in and I think maybe the fandom as a as a whole just saw this snively just this little this little jerk and went oh i know exactly what that character is and when a performance a script with the the scoring when everything can come together when you first meet somebody and present the same image in a completely different context that shows the strength of everybody of everything and and willow schnee instantly became one of my favorite characters and, and i've been saying it for the past couple of seasons but i think it was starting in season four when i i really started not that i didn't like her but i really started to hold weiss as one of if not my favorite member of team ruby as a character and this even more so adding the additional family dynamic whereas now we know not everything, but we know all of the pieces of her family dynamic. Whereas with Yang, we we know a lot. With Ruby, we know a lot. With actually no, with Blake, we 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 kind of know everything at this point um, to to help us really assess her her family unit. But with with Weiss, this brought everything back around, and with. I feel like Willow would be an echo of a future of a Weiss that never left. Even just there, there were two lines specifically of, of Willow realizing without realizing that Weiss hadn't been there for the past month or so. And, and that really affecting her to, to a point of, Oh, I forgot something important again. Like, ah, it's just, Aww. it's dear God. Like, and then you're not coming, you're not staying. Are you? No good. Like 
holy shit we've i think also we've been dealing with a lot or we've been dealing with a single terrible mother in raven and i'm standing by that to to get <laughs> to get a reminder that not, hashtag not all bombs to get a reminder that it you don't you never know what your parents are going through primarily because they probably won't tell you for quote your own safety and for your own goodwill or they don't want to worry you or whatever and it takes time it takes age and it takes experience to pick up on the subtleties of parenting and i think everybody uh i was i'm really happy that this happened just before the holiday season because i was able to go back home and spend some time with my mom and really just be like what 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 do i know about you what don't i know about you let's let's spend some time together and let's really i want to i want to know you as a person not as a parent and and sometimes there is a definite divide in that and and i think willow schnee just exemplifies hey call your mom yeah oh man oh man yeah the the line just like upon an introduction to her that like immediately disarmed me was i'm sorry i didn't make it down to your party i'm not feeling well it's not weiss's party oh god in any capacity yeah (laughs) so yeah and then and then yeah having what you were saying mark of like oh that's right you left like it just kind of does show how disconnected and uninterested she is with what her husband's been doing you know the fact that she didn't even realize that the party going on downstairs wasn't for one of her kids like that that says a lot but like Conversely, so, oh yeah, she ahead. was on it enough to install video cameras and know that a strange man came to the mansion the other night. Oh yeah, like she's in it for some places, but she really isn't for others. And it's really interesting to see where those lines are, well, what she's focusing on or able to focus on. What what the line is is the safety of her and her children that's where the line is this big party doesn't matter but you know what does matter is yeah that weirdo who came to the house unannounced that one day and obviously she had the cameras installed before that so Jacques is obviously the type of person where she's like yeah I don't trust you um just based on literally our entire marriage but like (laughs) I think that's where the line is is the safety of her and her children and that's why the cameras are there, but why she's completely uninterested in the party. And to kind of add to that point, Mark, you mentioned that somebody in our Discord um, noticed an interesting Easter egg. So I'll say somebody somebody in our Discord posted somebody else noticing. So Young Bro in on our Discord, which you can join, link down below, uh, join in the conversation, uh, pointed out a post from Luimni. Luimni? I... I I don't I don't know. But uh apparently the vodka that Willow was drinking is labeled Six Swans, which is a Grimm's fairy tale where a princess and later a queen works in silence for years in order to free her family from a curse. Well played, Kruby. Well played. Nice. Yeah. Oof. 
<sighs> so yeah, that wasn't what I was expecting from Willow, but ultimately I'm really glad that it's here. And, you know, we, we talked, we've talked a lot in the last volume and in this volume about the effects that, you know, Adam specifically had on Blake and how that very toxic relationship, um, you know, the way Rooster Teeth has approached storytelling in regards to that type of story of emotional abuse. And I feel like Willow Schnee and, you know, the Schnee family as a whole is another is another new way that this crew of writers is tackling a story of a different type of emotional abuse coming from a parental figure as opposed to a romantic partner. And it's just interesting in like all the ways that like abuse and neglect are sort of portrayed within this show like we have Raven being a completely absentee parent we have Jacques gaslighting and manipulating his kids and driving his wife to alcoholism and you know Mama Schnee drowning herself in alcohol and it's it's a far more nuanced and I think adept way of approaching characters like these than I think a lot of other shows do and so the fact that I was surprised by the way Willow Schnee was presented, I think, uh, again, I think it's just a testament to how well this show is written and how how carefully a lot of these characters are crafted, even when they're characters that are as on the periphery as, you know, Willow and Whitley. And yeah, same thing, Mark. I, I completely... It completely recontextualized my view of Whitley, too. Like, I don't look at him as a conniving, potentially evil child now. And now I look at him as just like his siblings. He was just abandoned and neglected. And yeah, once his sisters left was then the only person <laughs> that left to deal with a, a failing marriage. He's just as much a victim as everyone else. Yeah. Think about our introduction to him in this episode. Weiss opens the door and doesn't even say hi to him and just says, where's Klein? And his reaction of, you're not even going to say hi to me, has a completely different meaning now that you have this emotional context to it. It completely rewrote Whitley's character to a point where I kind of want to go back and look at all of the scenes with him. Yeah, yeah. same. I want to say, I've read Six Swans, like, I had this nice little book of Grimm's fairy tales, and there are some things that stick with you more than others, and the weird off-kilter ones, like Six Swans and The Straw, the Coal, and the Bean, and a few others are just like, oh, yeah, no, this lives in my head, because, um, yeah, Grimm's fairy tales are kind of hecked up, you guys. But what I'm interested in is, yeah, the, the bare bones are pretty similar, but in some of those details... It was her six brothers were cursed to be swans, and she was basically told, okay, you need to weave six shirts out of a certain, I don't remember, a certain type of material by hand, and you cannot speak a word while you do it. If you do, all of your efforts will be in vain. And it takes her years and years and years, and she's completely silent just weaving these shirts. A king finds her, falls in love with her, despite the fact that she doesn't say anything, marries her. She continues not to say anything, even when she's queen, to the point where the king's advisors are like, um, 
we're pretty sure she's a witch. We should burn her. And because she doesn't say a word in her defense, they drag her out to the stake to burn her and they light the fire. And at that point, the the time has essentially ended. Her brothers, the swans, show up and she throws the shirts on them and, you know, is able to save them. Except for one, because she hadn't managed to finish a sleeve. So the youngest brother had one swan wing for the rest of his life instead of an arm. So weird little details, but... I worry about how much they're going to stick to the story. Yeah, agreed. Especially with the implications that the one that will not be fully saved will be Whitley. Or the one that will be forever altered. Well, and the whole, you know, burning her at the stake because she can't stand up for herself bit is also kind of... Woo! Grimm's fairy tales really like to punish women. Like, disproportionately. A lot. But... Oh yeah. man, that's that's some fun additional context. <laughs> yeah, I read a lot when I was a kid, and like I said, it's it's the really hecked up Grimm's fairy tales are the ones that stuck with me. It's just such a cool thing that like all of that context comes from just a tiny little detail. Because honestly, when I was so yeah, shout out to Young Bro on our Discord for for linking that to us because. When I watched this episode, that detail completely flew over my head because I wasn't looking at the 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 label of the bottle. I was just like looking at the scene of mother and daughter. Um, and so the fact that there's just this tiny little detail that basically tells you everything you need to know about Willow in one moment. But it's just a tiny little detail on screen that it's not drawn attention to it's just there I, I think that's remarkably cool and again shows a lot about the thought and care that goes into this show but also I really liked the way this scene played out yeah because you know we we do get this sadness and this recontextualization of the, both of these two characters but like ultimately we get her mom being proud of her for having had the strength to leave and then having the strength to like not come back and because like just that one moment of good and she cries and hands over her scroll and walks out of the room like she's so proud of Weiss and Winter for being able to leave um, even though it does mean leaving Whitley all alone hopefully hopefully now that again we have that recontextualization Hopefully it means the sisters can be there for their brother in some capacity. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But point being, Detective Weiss now has the clues that she needs to crack this case wide <laughs> open. <laughs> and um, we've been going on for quite some time in this episode. Do we have any final thoughts before we wrap it up for the day? Uh, Mark? This is another good example of subtlety being bigger than just telling us like we're not gonna just tell you but i think the scene with willow and weiss will go down as one of the best character scenes of the entire series like what an amazing performance what from from both actresses what an amazing uh it's like all, all of the cinematography in it the scoring just wonderful and and 
that really the when a scene can come along and recontextualize everything that you thought about a particular set of characters seven seasons in uh, that's that's an achievement and and the crew be really pulled through on this one yeah the um yeah quick shout out to caitlin glass yeah. um who voices willow uh ah. oh my gosh she she killed this performance and Honestly, I did not recognize her. Normally, I, I feel like I can pick out her performances um, pretty well. And she just vanished into this particular part. So well done, Miss Glass. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Stacy, any final thoughts? We had a lot of carefully crafted nuances throughout this episode, both with the scene with you know Willow and Weiss, and then also in the dining room with the way it was laid out, the way that scene was handled. A lot of pieces building up. And I feel like, we noticed some of the nuances, but when we see what ha- what's to come in the future, I feel like we can even look back and we'll find heaps more uh, just how well this entire episode was crafted. Katie? I will be interested to see how this episode fits into the movie of Volume 7 as a whole. It felt a little transitory. It also gave us a lot to work with. And I can really appreciate episodes like that. There was so much artistry in here between the moment with Crow battling his demons and our brief comedy scene and finally meeting Mom She and, like Mark has been saying, recontextualizing the family dynamic just from a little bit of dialogue. And then our nice little stinger at the end in which we usher in the day after tomorrow, I guess. (laughs) So... There's a lot that went on in this episode, and it was very well executed. This was a pretty damn good one. Uh, yeah, we were talking a lot about the um, aesthetic uh, look of the Schnee Mansion in this episode and how it's changed from Volume 4. Something aesthetically I did not understand up until this episode was that the orange glow and mantle, which I legit thought was just an aesthetic choice, came from the heating grid. And now that it's off, that orange hue is gone. And it's, yeah, it was just really cool. And I feel really silly for just thinking, oh, that was just an aesthetic choice and it looks real pretty. No, it was very, very functional and now it's gone. Oh, no. (laughs) Yikes. Yikes, 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 yikes. Um, but yeah, all in all, this episode was incredible. And like, there's so, so much, like, it's fun to just sort of passively watch a show. But like, I appreciate what, when we take time to do every week, which is to dig a little deeper. And when Ruby, when we dig a little deeper into Ruby, there's really a lot underneath the surface and again, it just makes me very appreciative of the the thought and effort that goes into this show. So um, I know we say it like every every week, but bravo, bravo, <laughs> bravo, Kruby. You guys are amazing. Um, all right. On that note, I think it's time to wrap it up. Mark, where can people go if they want to keep up with you? You can follow me on social media at Mark B. Donica. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. It's been a little light since the new year but eh there's just kind of enjoying the break that i'm on before i jump back into the absolute craziness which is my job so uh follow me along there i uh i do not repost spoilers 
to the point where I unfollow people that post spoilers. So you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and if you want to talk anything uh, Ruby or if, or if you see something on, on a social media, uh, join Discord, send me a message, and we could talk about something privately without having to spoil stuff for people. So, yeah, follow me there. Thanks, everybody. Stacy, I'm Stacy Shuttleworth. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Stacy Shuttles. Uh, I am currently working on not one, not three, but two cosplays at the same time. So uh, prepare for a lot of posts about the process and the crying. All the crying. Katie? I'm Katie. You can follow me all over the social medias as well as on YouTube and Twitch at Kiaxet. That is K-I-A-X-E-T. Uh, my Instagram is mostly cat pictures. Let's be real. I volunteer at a cat shelter once a week and that gives me so many kitten pictures. If you like reactions to these episodes, they live on that YouTube channel. And I'm trying to fire up the Twitch a little more this year because I might have a little more free time. And that's mostly good at mobile games and bad at Overwatch. And I've been Inspector Salinas. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Manguin. That's T H E. I was expecting a deep New Orleans accent. What the hell? Uh, I can't do that. Every, I, I, let's be honest, I can't do any accents. Um, they all eventually devolve into bad Southern. I want to hear Southern Pro <laughs> Anyway, uh, yeah, my handle is T-H-E-M-E-N-G-U-I-N. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I have a YouTube channel called Silver Screams where Katie and I discuss horror things. I also do a Lost retrospective podcast called No Love Lost where my co-host Will Link loves Lost and I don't. We talk about it. And um, be sure to follow the whole team here on Twitter at The Rooster Team. Join our Discord so you can take place in those fun theorizing discussions and... um, all sorts of other fun shenanigans. I I very much appreciate the art thread in our Discord. Um, ugh, it's such a good time. And um, yeah, uh, if you again, just as a reminder, go to iTunes, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, all that fun stuff. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. And uh, this has been Ruby Redux, and now it's time to say goodbye. <laughs>